Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene. Green Scene is a family-owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is a high school strength and conditioning coach. He also trains at Orange Theory and is their assistant basketball and track coach here at Ensworth High School. She played college basketball at Lees McRae. Ladies and gentlemen, Lexis Norwood. Lexis, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm fascinated because we got one of the best players in the country on our high school basketball team. And you, you was a, were an accomplished basketball player. How much has the game changed from the time that you were playing high school basketball and the development outside of just high school basketball to what we're looking at today with Jelani Cambridge and all these superstar players that we've had in and out of Ensworth, but in this area as well. How much has it changed and how fun is it coaching it? So for sure, it's super fun. Um, I think about this almost every day. It's changed a ton. Um, We could go different routes, social media, Mm -hmm. um, coaches and how just I see Jelani and other players talk to college coaches and how it's just, I mean, there's still rules and stuff, obviously, but it just seems so relaxed and just the relationships are easier to be built Mm -hmm. um, just compared to when I was being recruited and um, these tournaments and the numerous amounts of teams you can play for and just options, especially in this area um, compared to Knoxville where I grew up. Mm -hmm. So it 
definitely has changed. And then we talk about the talent and more high schools are investing in the strength and conditioning programs and learning that once you get the kids stronger, faster, then it's going to translate to their sport. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, it's changed. And the talent has just on the girls and boys side just comes such a long way. It really has. And I think that's the thing I love about where girls sports are. Obviously, here at our school right now, I'd almost argue that the girls sports are performing at a higher level than the boys sports and the boys sports are performing admirably. But our girls are just on fire and on point in so many different sports. And with right now with Jelani probably being one of the top five player in the country, mm-hmm. right? And her ball handling skills are so abnormal for her age, not just for any, but just so amazing. Court vision is spectacular as well. How much of that is innate and how much of that is coached? So she, I mean, the Cambridges are just a family work of art. And so it, I also see the amount of work she puts in, though. Mm-hmm. And she's been in the gym since she was just a kid. And I've only been here for two years. So mm-hmm. I can't even, I'm, I'm going off of what I hear. And I'm going off of what, I, what I've seen in my past two years here and watched her play in person. And she just puts in the work. She's always at a workout. She's always just getting better. And she also knows that her game is not perfected. And she knows that there's always room for growth. And um, I think that she still has a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And but she knows that and she always puts in the work and yeah. her and her sister Kennedy. That's amazing. So. That's what it takes. Because there are, There's a lot of people that have talent. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of work ethic. And there's a lot of people that have a ton of work ethic but don't have the talent. For sure. But it's that rare breed that has the talent and you cannot work them. Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, you know, um, Chimica Holds Claw. I mean, like, for sure. Like they just, the battery doesn't die. And it's mental for them too. They get the game and just, I mean, there's some people who, you know, skill, it's, it's there. When they're on the court, the skill is there. But Jelani and Kennedy, they get the game mentally and understand it on paper and can mm-hmm. write it up for you as well and come up with plays and give us suggestions. So I'm wow. learning from them. That's really cool. For sure. You know, I think one of the things that I took before it, in my own profession, before it happened in other sports is that I started teaching girls golf. Like I taught the boys, I didn't separate them like, Oh, well you're a girl. So you can't do this. No, we're going to learn how to swing it as fast as you possibly can swing it. And we're going to find how far you can hit it, and then we're going to straighten it out. But the hardest thing to teach is speed, mm-hmm. probably in every sport, right? And a lot of, especially early on when I started, because I didn't teach a lot of girls early. I became the guys coach when I first came to Nashville. I taught boys, and probably because I taught Brent Snedeker, who was one on the PGA Tour, all the boys started to gravitate towards me, and a girl, the girls went to other players. But soon, I picked up one, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, she started hitting it as far as some of the boys. Well, how are you doing that? And I'm like, well, I'm not doing anything special. I'm just teaching her how to play golf. Not, I'm not segregating it into boy, girl, tall, tall, small, and none of that. And, but now I see the training that we do here at the school is not separated. It's trained for explosion, training for speed, training for strength and endurance. That it doesn't make a difference. And I believe that that is a that's a not an old thing. That's a fairly new concept that we've brought to the table here at the school. 
How important do you feel that it is for the girl's self-esteem and their own athletic and probably outside of athletic self-confidence in in the workouts and what it what it requires to be great at anything a level of discipline in the weight room plays a role outside of the weight room I think you hit it right on it hasn't always been that way and so I think right now us as coaches and now that more strength and conditioning programs are occurring in high schools um, now as coaches we just have to inform the girls and give them knowledge that their bodies are not gonna you know produce like boys or you know you hear girls say, I'm going to be too muscular. I don't want to lift. You know, we just have to educate them. And with that comes the nutrition and um, recoveries. And um, I think also there there should be no difference with how you coach girls and guys. And at Innsworth here, we, like you said, we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as a good strength coach, um, there should be no difference with how you coach different sports. Because essentially in every sport, um, the main goal is faster, stronger, and, you know, more powerful at whatever they're doing. And so um, you hit it right on. There's, you know, not a big difference. And um, if you can just basically inform these younger girls and hopefully we can warp their minds into, um, if they play a sport, seeing the translation onto their uh, playing field. And if they don't play a sport, seeing the translation into just a normal, everyday, healthy life. Yeah, that's probably actually the the bigger goal mm-hmm. because like like one in a thousand basketball players or probably even more at, that would be at a school are going to make it anything past division one sports exactly so what we're really trying to teach people to do is live their best life for as long as they possibly can in the healthiest way possible and that's sounds like it would be something that everybody would want to do but it is very far from that. Exactly. And it's interesting. I wonder because I can tell you how hard it is to motivate on on my side. How hard is it to motivate in a daily when you're in the daily grind <laughs> over there of getting kids to see past the pain right now for the long term gain? It's hard. Um, I think that Innsworth and. Innsworth has done a great job because that they've always bought into a fitness program. Um, and so these kids just know that that's what comes with it. But it's, I feel like it might be harder for especially the kids who don't play a sport um, because they're thinking, what is their end goal? And so we have to keep teaching them. Like I said before, it's life. It's about, you know, walking into a weight room and knowing just something to do to Mm -hmm. get moving or um, not hurting yourself and knowing the proper way to just do basic movements. And then for the athletes, um, it's bigger than the sport. And so knowing how to be on a team, knowing Mm -hmm. how to, there's so many things that go into a sport that um, you could carry over into life after that sport. And so that's just the motivation and pushing through for that day. In my classes, I try to do everything I can to just make that 40 to 45 minutes go by in a way that they're productive and also having fun, not realizing that they are, Mm -hmm. you know, grinding. Yeah, for sure. It's, It's fascinating to me. Because you you played in college, okay? And most people don't understand that if you end up playing college sports, no matter what level you played at, that is a very huge feather in your cap. And it is a trump card, as I would say, coming out of college. Because anybody recognizes the amount of work that it took for you 
probably from the time you were eight or nine, the amount of dedication you put in in high school and then go to college to play sports. Most people don't buy into the fact that it's a big deal unless you play at Alabama or Kentucky or UT. But it is so far from the truth. And your experience of from high school basketball and all the summer stuff that you may have played in to get ready to play college, what is that one thing that you wish you knew when you were 15 that you figured out when you were 22 and you were a senior in college hmm. about, about your sport and how you prepared? For sure. So um, I learned a lot for sure. But I'll say the one thing is to do what I want to do and not let others around me. And that could have been coaches, parents, um, you know, social media, the small amount it was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and just just everything and all the distractions around me get into me making my decision. I felt that I... Um, signed really quick and I just wanted that pressure off I wanted the visits to be over and the playing under pressure to be over and while it actually was a great fit for me I might have wished and that I could go through my senior year playing and maybe seeing what else I could get um and my situation was a little different. I didn't have my entire junior year to play. And so I also felt the pressure of coming back from an ACL injury Mm. and coming off of a season in which is a huge recruiting season that I didn't have. And so I just had so much pressure Mm -hmm. as a 17, 18 year old and looking back on it, 22, 23, you know, just relax. It's high school. And I wasn't in the moment. Yeah. And so, um, that's the biggest thing. I find it interesting. I, I read a really interesting article from Stephen Kotler, who's one of the foremost authorities on flow states and elite human performance. And they talked about when you're in, when you're anxious, you're spending too much time in the future. Mm-hmm. When you feel depressed or down, you're playing too much in the past. But people often wonder that moment in time where you're playing basketball, playing any sport, really, when everything either slows down to the point where you can almost feel the ball slowly come out of your hands on that jump shot mm-hmm. or everything speeds up at the right time. Well, when, when you when time, because it's all man-made anyway, there's no such thing as time. We just constructed it. When everything slows down or speeds up as needed, you're present. Exactly. And it's really hard to stay present in today's world. And I almost feel like maybe 25 years ago, there were more people depressed about where they were because of decisions they made in the past. But I don't think there's any doubt right now that anxiety rules the roost in high school sports, wouldn't you say? For sure. And to me, that's one of the hardest things because they can't help but think about where they're going to go when exactly. they're – end of their sophomore year, all of their junior year, and probably the first half of their senior year, very few are fortunate to have that that concern knocked off their plate by the time their first day of school their senior year. For sure. And at the time, for me, I didn't know I had anxiety, but I've actually been diagnosed with that years later. Mm-hmm. And I think now as an adult, I put myself back in those sh- high school shoes and early college year shoes, um, knowing how to deal with my anxiety and just wish I could put my shoes on again because I would play my sport in the moment. Mm-hmm. And 
I would appreciate more of what's happening right then and not be so worried about my future. Yeah, I hear you. Well, recently you've picked up this game called golf <laughs> and uh, it, the bug bit you and now you're infected. I'm tell, infected. T- <laughs> tell us about your, your, your entry into the game of golf and how did it get you so good? So um, my dad always took us to play golf when we were little. And I say us as me and my sister. It was something we did every Father's Day um, because we knew he just liked to be out there with us. And that day for him wasn't a serious golf day, but we just knew he wanted to spend time with us. And so um, even after those, you know, Father's Days or just uh, days on the golf course with my dad, um, he would, you know, try and inch in some tips or even Mm -hmm. buy us some uh female golf clubs or just anything to maybe get us more involved. And it was always basketball and track and my sister played volleyball. And so, you know, he always knew that was his thing and maybe one day and I've just been kind of getting into more things now that I have more time Mm -hmm. and assessing my body more and seeing what I, um, what feels good, what doesn't. And, um, so I got, I went home to Knoxville, my mom's house and I got, my golf clubs and dusted them off. And, um, I also came here at, to Innsworth two years ago and I met some great kids who are on the golf team here. And mm-hmm. I just thought that was huge. Um, because sometimes even in the weight room, I feel like those kids are overlooked and, um, or can be. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I want to treat every, as we were talking about earlier, every sport, and every, you know, kid, I just wanted to meet as many kids as I could. Mm-hmm. And I started talking to some golf kids and they were talking great about coach. And <laughs> so um, I started playing and knew of some courses around here. And of course, that got my dad super excited. And so we played more. And then mm-hmm. I got to playing with some coworkers and found out more people were interested and even basketball stars and NBA stars that I watch. And I just find the sport so different from any other sport that I played because it deals with the different mental mm-hmm. side. And I'm not great, but that's also another thing that draws me to it is because I learn and I can learn from, um, you know, other people and I can learn from videos on my own and books mm-hmm. and then go out and like record myself and watch myself on a video or send it. Sure. And so, um, it's definitely a great game, and I can't wait for this weather to let up. So. Uh, no kidding. <laughs> well, I think it's important for everybody to understand, especially when I, when you come in here and you listen to me talk about golf to the kids on the golf team. I know it sounds like, you know, with the boys' team ranked number three in the country and the girls ranked 39th, uh, that it sounds like we're just going to be putting people on TV. But the really the most powerful thing about golf is twofold. There's hardly anything left in your life where you get a chance to spend four or five hours with somebody you care about doing something fun and competitive outdoor. And two, golf has this very unique position in business where if you can play a reasonable round of golf, you don't have to play like I play. If you can play a reasonable round of golf, especially as a female, that is a massive trump card in the business world. Because I tell people, I tell the girls all the time, if it comes down to you playing proficiently and me being a professional and a corporation is going to be spending X amount of dollars for a scramble to benefit a charity or something, you are more valuable to the team than I am. 
for two reasons. One, because if they're a talented female player, that's unique, and that's something to get more people excited about. And then two, because it's rare, it's also awesome to be involved in. And it separates you twofold because you already know how hard this game is. For sure. So if you've worked at it hard enough to get that good, I know that you're willing to work for my company. And we can put these things together so that you can play a little more golf, take more clients out, and it makes us more money. It makes you more valuable. And I would, and I told people all this. I know that I taught Brent Snedeker. I know Brent's made like eighty-eight million dollars playing golf, but I have taught two people that have made more money than that in business, and they use golf to do it. Now, are they as famous as Brent? No, but they've used this sport in a way to capitalize on it. So I would always be in trying to encourage you. You have no idea where your what your future holds, but this game is kind of a deal game breaker for you Mm -hmm. if you get this down it is oh and you play golf and then they want to see you play and as soon as you show proficiency it is it is so huge for you so that's why i mean every time i see you and Corey come in here i'm like going they're getting my time i gotta make them as good as i can make them anytime it's so much fun it is when you thinking about golf and you know, in the recent era, you know, we had this gigantic lapse of Tiger Woods. So we had the greatest golfer that's ever walked the face of the earth, probably from 2000 to 2009. And then an epic collapse for 10 years. So he, he dominated for 10 years. He fell off the face of the earth for 10 years for a variety of ways. And then he comes back and wins the Masters in 2019. And what I would argue was the greatest comeback in the history of sports. Because not only did he come back from physical injury. He came back from mental and emotional uh, uh, trauma, humiliation in front of uh, probably billions, and came back and won the most important golf tournament in the world. And I just couldn't believe what I saw. When you think of what Tiger Woods means to you and sport, what does Tiger Woods mean to you? He's huge, honestly. I... um going back to my dad and just growing up and my dad playing golf, I I looked at Tiger Woods and I mean, I'm a kid watching him grow up and just accomplish all of these things. And then he goes through, you know, his mental breakdown and the trauma and public humiliation and for him to just come back and, you know, in sport, it just, it shows that these huge athletes and these just billionaires and millionaires, they're normal people as well. And they, you know, put their shoes on every day and um, they're not resilient to trauma or any of the bad things out there. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's huge. Yeah. And I, I, I see him and now I see him and his son and it's just, you know, he can teach his son that he's made mistakes, but mm-hmm. look, you know, and golf has always brought him back um, to just, you know, the person that he, I don't know him, but truly is probably yeah. inside. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's huge. Yeah. And I think we're right now we're in a pretty unique time. And I always say, I say this all the time. It's very refreshing 
but I don't think people are paying attention to it like I wish that they would. But in a moment in time where the greatest golfer in the history of the game is an African-American man and the greatest rapper could be a white guy, Eminem, could be. We could argue that Tiger isn't, but we could argue that he is, and we could argue that Eminem isn't, but we could argue that he is. We don't talk about this in, in enough, but when we, when we think about where we are in society right now with diversity and inclusion and acknowledging the pros and the cons and the true realities of it, I know this is an important topic for you, and it is for me too, because it's really important for me to get the, the real story out there and get move past propaganda and move past BS. What does it mean to you? for true diversity and truly acknowledge where we are now and where we need to go in the future to make it better for everybody. Yeah, so um, this is a very uh, important topic to me. I actually spoke on this um, last year at a coaches conference, and the specific topic was diversity in coaching at Innsworth. And I just harped on Innsworth Fitness and our program and how we see every kid, 475 kids a day, and every kid looks different, and every kid comes from somewhere different. And so how can, not even as coaches, but just as people growing up in the world, um, I feel that it's one thing to acknowledge diversity and inclusion and know that it it should happen or needs to happen or, okay, yeah, we're diverse. But uh, it's another thing to act upon it and not treat everyone the same then because acknowledge that everyone is not the same, but treat everyone the same. And there's just, it's not black and white and it's gray, but I think that acting on it is a lot different than acknowledging it. And so, um, you know, it's huge in the coaching world and us as coaches, but like I said, it's also huge in just us growing up and um, it could be our coworkers and people we work with. It could be our families and our family's kids and just mm. whoever. How do you see the diversity within the school? How do you see it play out? Certainly in where you are in day to day, which is in the gym. How do you see Ensworth in our community how, how, how are we doing with this particular topic? So I think Ensworth does a very great job of, one, recognizing our fitness department and that we are one of the few schools I've been involved in where we put fitness, you know, on our top radar and we understand that either we're going to help an athlete get to the highest level they want to be, or we're going to help a person who doesn't play sports understand that health is um, health is wealth. And even as an adult, not playing a sport, you need to understand, um, understand that value. I think that sports automatically is going to create diversity and, um, which is which is why I love sports. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a whole team of people from everywhere, but what's your goal in that team? And that's what brings you together and unifies it. Um, I think that Innsworth, in my two years here, has done a, has done a pretty great job of um, diversity and inclusion um, seminars. And we have certain groups. And we have, um, I think making the kids aware of what's going on around them and making the kids aware of 
um, the different cultures and the different types of people that they have sitting right next to them in class Mm -hmm. and um, just some certain things that have occurred. I think that Innsworth has done a lot for, you know, any specific situations for kids and families. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I'm, I'm interested in, this matters to me is that I, I, I wonder how hard it is for the minority kids no matter what, whether it's their Chinese, they're, they're the black kids, or they're where, wherever they're from. When they come to a school like Ensworth, and it looks like they're here to play basketball, it looks like they're here to play football, it looks like they're here because they play an instrument unbelievable, or they can sing so awesome, that they feel like they've been brought in almost as mercenaries. And so there's this weird thing. Does the athlete or person feel like a mercenary? And then do their fellow classmates feel like they're brought in like that? And how does that play out? Because of all the things that I'm concerned about is that's a terrible picture. And then if it's, if it's not done right, you miss the real opportunity in education the opportunity to play at a school that has this many facilities, with this many great trainers, with this many great coaches, it, it's easy to get lost in the woe is me of either side of that argument. How, how are we doing there? Because it is something that I hear, but I also hear that it's getting better, but I like, what does that mean? And right. you're, you're more on the ground on that than I am. Right. And that is a really important thing to me because I feel like when I walk, you know, COVID has really ruined the lunchroom scenario. Mm-hmm. Now we're starting to get it back. But for me, that's the only time I'm on campus, essentially, because the golf center is off the campus. And I used to sit there with, with Nick and some of the other coaches that are no longer here that were, that were in the football team or whatever. And I would just be like they would be feeling that, that, that situation and how they were trying to address it and make it better. And then I, I stopped going over there. We didn't have lunch together for a year and a half or so. How, how is it playing out right now? So in my two years here, I've definitely heard of this, you know, case of basically just using, you know, masking certain students or whatever um, for the face of whatever that might be. And it's keeping me on my toes now because at this very moment, I'm not sure if it's progressing or regressing. However, I personally have not seen it. I've heard of it. And so as a coach here, I'll say, you know, I haven't seen a case of it, but I know that it probably has happened in Mm -hmm. the past. And so how can we do better at that? I think that that goes back to the diversity and, and inclusion not just acknowledging it, but acting upon it and what exactly that might look like. I'm going to stay on my toes and, you know, hope that I can do something or think of some ideas over the next, you know, but I have not seen it specifically. Yeah. me, I haven't either. I'm just kind of like, you just, you hear it. Mm -hmm. You never see it for sure. But like, that's kind of where we are in the whole race situation, the diversity situation. You you hear it exactly, but you don't see it. But that doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing that's important for me is like one of the things that really irritates me is the lack of knowledge and understanding of so many basic concepts. 
right? So this is what really fries my engine. Is like the, you know the, the reason why your skin is darker than mine is because your family's origin comes from close to the equator. Mm-hmm. So all the only reason why your skin is darker than mine is because you're historically your body has had to adapt to the sun. And I'm mine is Irish German. I'm not close to the sun, so I'm going to be whiter. Okay. When I I mean I think about it, I've learned that when I was 29 years old. I talk to people all the time. They've never heard of such thing. So I was furious that I was ignorant to that fact when I read it in The Sports Gene by David Epstein, which is probably, if it's not the greatest book I've ever read, it's in the top three. I couldn't put it down. I read it in one night. I read for seven hours. I'm a speed reader, but I had to slow down because there was so much in it that I couldn't believe. So I'm sitting here thinking to myself, people are making decisions completely and utterly uninformed about nearly everything that they're basing their biases and their judgments on. And to me, that's what I've used my platform to discuss with people. It's like, that is the only reason that your skin is darker than mine. And we know for a fact that seven generations, if that person who came from close to the equator goes to close to the North Pole in seven generations, they'll be much fairer. Mm-hmm. And if I move to the middle of the earth to, to the equator, my, my, my generation, seven generations later, can be much darker. That is the natural evolution of the body trying to combat the sun. What makes that so hard to understand? It literally just befuddles me. So when I, when I have these conversations with people, I was so pleased to know that you knew that because literally I've had a, a hundred, this is like, you're like 147 podcast. And I've talked about this and people are like, really? Are they you? don't know. They don't know. Yeah. And I'm like, there's the problem. Mm-hmm. There's problem number one mm-hmm. is we don't even know what the heck we're talking about most of the time. And it just, it drives me literally insane. Yeah. And so to, to me, I know that it is a, it's a very passionate story for you and, and i get it we get a chance to do some really good things here for these kids because well this is not only do they get a great education here maybe you could argue top one percent in the country our sports facilities are literally off the chart this is a, the taj mahal of high <laughs> schools and we still face the big world problems no matter whether we're not one of the big schools or we are. And the most important thing for me is to be able to create a safe environment to discuss these difficult topics because we've lost the ability to communicate with each other. For sure. And what's worse than the inability to communicate with each other is the ignorance of the topic so that you can't even have an educated conversation because if one person is in the know and the other person is not in the know, they're going to take the Dunning-Kruger effect and claim to be a genius and that you're wrong. And it's going to be like literally the most insane moment. And we have to be able to, if we don't learn how to start to communicate again, we're in big trouble. For sure. Because we're already kind of bound up in that phone way, way too much anyway. Almost more, you you could go out right now and see, people dating and they're sending text messages to themselves it's so sad it is sad and that's one of the things i love about you you look people in the eye you're extroverted in your delivery 
That's probably because you had to play basketball and you had to communicate and you wanted to win. You wanted to play at a high level. And that means there's no excuses. So you're a no excuse extrovert and you want it. And not only do you want it for yourself, but you realize that so much greatness can be found within these kids that they're either afraid to tap into or don't know how to tap into it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about what it is that you're doing here. Now, I'm fascinated. You, you've now worked your way into Orange Theory as well. Yes, sir. So Orange Theory and the splats. <laughs> <laughs> how did you find yourself involved in Orange Theory? And why do you love it so much? So I took a couple of Orange Theory classes. Just um, Orange Theories are everywhere. So um, you can find one all across the country, any city you travel to. Um, it's just, it's so cool. There's one on every corner, every city. And I think that's what makes it so cool is all the coaches are trained the same way. And so I can go to California and pick up a class and you know, it's just going to flow. Um, and it just feels like we're all one family, but how did I get into it? When I first moved to Nashville two years ago for the Innsworth job, um, it was COVID and I was doing Innsworth and I just, I, I had a bunch of personal training clients back in Knoxville right Mm -hmm. before I left that I had to leave. And, um, I just wanted the, um, I wanted the, just the adult clientele and just to build more relationships and make more of a name of myself in Nashville. And so I was actually working out at Orange Theory. And then the um, head coach there knew that I was a coach at Innsworth. And uh, she was like, do you want to get certified to be an Orange Theory coach? And I was like, you know, sure. And um, little did I know that that training and becoming an Orange Theory coach took me so far out of my regular coaching comfort zone that it made me a better coach mm-hmm. in my overall coaching. And it still does. I mean, it's a challenge. It's a type of coaching where I've got a mic on and I never have before. And I'm having to learn how to fluctuate my voice to talk to my clients. And um, I can make my own playlist. And that kind of shows off my personality. And mm-hmm. people want to come to my class and feel my energy and um, people who have consistently come to my classes and I coach on the weekends because, you know, just it's worth. And um, during basketball season, I'm down to one day a week, which is Sundays. And those five classes on Sundays are just so live and people don't even want to work out on the weekends. But as I said earlier, my biggest goal is to make it not feel like a workout. And so they're waking up early on a Sunday, sometimes before church, you know, and it just makes me feel good to know that I've got just a bunch of people in East Nashville that, or from all over Nashville that, you know, want to come to my class and want to get to know me. And I've made friends out of some of those members. And, um, also, I work out at Orange Theory during the week, and so it's something that I coach, but I also live through as well. Mm-hmm. And they're just really good full body, you know, hit high intensity workouts. Awesome. So, so we're, we're listening to this this story of, of a of a girl who turned into a, a college basketball player and is now a woman, and now she's got a professional career in training, and she's also branching out into training in Orange Theory outside of being a, a, condition, a fitness and conditioning coach here at high school. It sounds like a straight shot of success, but we'd be remiss to think that you haven't had to struggle through something. 
What was that one thing that you had to struggle through that you weren't quite sure you were going to make it through? But once you did, you realized you could take on anything. I would say I've got two. One is in sports, and that was tearing my ACL. Um, I talked about it a little bit earlier, but tearing my ACL my junior year of high school, which is a big recruiting year. And I will say that some colleges I had interested walked away. And, you know, they don't know how you're going to come back after an eight-month, eight- to 12-month injury like Mm -hmm. that. And um, it was the first injury I had ever, you know, occurred. And it was tough. It really was. I had never not played basketball. And so I had to deal with sitting on the bench and being a teammate in another way and getting the coach's perspective because I was sitting right next to him Mm -hmm. when we made it to state and – Um, it was the best year, uh, we played and I just couldn't get that through my head as a high schooler because I'm not on the court. Mm -hmm. And so it was a way for me to grow. Um, and then also it was a way for me to, um, know that there are still loyal coaches and people out there because the coaches that stuck, uh, stuck with me throughout my recovery process and still wanted me to come to their college. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I learned that through sports. Now, personally, I would say, My parents' divorce um, was probably the hardest thing I've ever dealt with outside of sports. Um, They got divorced officially when I left for college. And so to people that might not seem like a big deal because I'm gone in a way, but I had a little sister still at home. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just worried about her and how she's dealing with, you know, being in middle school and high school and going back and forth and it was just tough. It really was. Yeah, it's a cue change too, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, not only are you, you're like closing a massive chapter of your life, which is your, you know, your high school life or your school life. For sure. And now you're going to go, you're kind of like that little continuum between the real world and school. You have that four or five year window where you're kind of on your own, kind of working your way, but you're still protected by a school atmosphere, but mm-hmm. you're not quite in the real world, but you're starting to make big, big girl decisions. And then you factor that in, you're going to go do that for the first time. And you're doing that with the family unit falling apart. For sure. I can, uh, I can't imagine what yeah. that was like. And my parents are great because they never let that affect them coming to my games together. And, mm-hmm. um, none of that was ever changed. They still sat next to each other at my graduations and all of that. Um, and I will say that I didn't really deal with the divorce when I was in college. And right from undergrad, I went to grad school. Mm -hmm. And right from grad school, I got to Innsworth and in my first full-time job. And so I'll say that I didn't really start dealing with it because I was playing basketball in college and it was just happening. And so you don't really deal with things until things start to slow down and you start to think and you don't play basketball anymore. You don't have that outlet. And it's like wow, my parents are divorced, you know, and Mm -hmm. I guess I didn't deal with that or I couldn't deal with that when it happened. But now that I'm older and, you know, I've got a relationship of my own and Mm -hmm. I want to find a man that I don't want to divorce, you know? And so it's, things start to come into perspective. Yeah. One of the things I talk about all the time when I go speak is that the things that are important to you at 16 are laughably important at 20 and the things at 25, when you look back at 20, you're laughing at that 20 year old. And then you get to like in your early thirties and there's a, there's a bridge between 20 and 30 at 25. You're starting like, wait a second. 
the things that I think are that were important just a couple of years ago aren't important at all. And I'll have this new vision of what's important. Mm-hmm. And it slowly evolves into your early 40s. And then you find out like who you actually are. Because now your profession is set in. Family is set in. And I would say they say that differences or bring you together. I think at the beginning, maybe so. But if you have enough things in common that are high-level passions for both of you, that's going to be a problem at some point mm-hmm. because it's going to pull apart, right? And we don't, we don't get taught. We don't get taught a lot of things in school. We spend a lot of time maybe doing things that we might work, but everybody's probably going to find themselves in a family situation one way or another. We don't really talk about that. We don't talk about finances and how to how to manage your own self, your own money, at all. We don't figure out how to cook anymore. There's no home economics anymore. So, like a lot of real, true life skills that we have to have all the time are gone. Are gone, and it just is so academic. And not only was it academic, but we're still spending a lot of time doing things in a 1950s model. We're not preparing anybody for 2028 right now where it's like we're preparing them for 1981 right and it irritates me to no end so i think that it's interesting what i'd be interested to hear like what is your biggest takeaway positively from the divorce i'd say forgiveness Mm. honestly um i had to learn how to forgive in so many different ways and understand that I can't control a lot of things. But if I just focus on one myself and two, my relationship with another person and just that relationship and how I can't change another person. So when I say control, I mean, I can feel a certain way about someone, but might not get that back. Mm -hmm. And I, and I can't do anything about that all the time. Yeah. And so don't try and make that person, you know, feel a certain way or anything. So just control and um, forgiveness. Yeah. Final question. We generally speaking turn out to be the five most impactful people in our lives who, are, who we spent the most time with. Obviously, you're very young. But as of right now, where you stand? Who are the five people that have paved the way for you to where you are right now and the, the success that you're having? So no specific order, but I am going to start off with my mom. Um, she's been through so many challenges, and I've just learned and grew through her. She's always been there by my side. Um, number two, my sister. And that's weird because she's six years younger than me. But being an older sister also makes me a better adult mm-hmm. and just a better person. Um, I'll also say um, head strength and conditioning coach at the University of Georgia and the Olympic sports is catch, Coach Katrin Coach. Um, she really paved strength and conditioning for me and just kind of taught me that, you know, you, I can be a woman in this field and I can have a voice just as, you know, the men. And also I stand out because... I have that drive and I'm very attention and detailed oriented. And so she just saw something and a coach in me, uh, before I, before I did. Um, let's see, that was number three. That's three. Yeah. 
I, there's just so many. Um, I'm trying to do people that I like know, know. Mm-hmm. Um, my best friend, I'll say her name's Jatia, and she just moved to Nashville less than a year ago or about a year ago. And she's just always been there. We, you know, we've been through so many friends in our group mm-hmm. that have, um, you know, kind of fallen off or just kind of, it's just always been us at the end yeah. um, for sure. And then finally I'm going to go with my high school coach, um, basketball coach, high school basketball coach. And I never thought I would say that. And when I was in high school, we just always butted heads. Um, his name's Justin Underwood. And we just always just, I mean, he was great and he was a great coach, but I see that in a different per- perspective now. Mm-hmm. And so he, I told him I would never coach basketball. I told him <laughs> that I would never, you know, do what he does and look at me now. Um, and now we laugh and we talk and, um, I just use so many of his coaching tactics and, um, he says it's all about building relationships and I agree. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think he's a big reason why I'm doing what I do. Yeah. Well, I think that it's important for you to know that your smile is your business card. (laughs) The first time I met you, you have, you, you, you have lights in your smile in your eyes. So because you're not afraid to smile, because you're not afraid to look at people in the eye, you deserve and command a level of respect and credit because people don't do that anymore. And I'm so proud of what you do here for our kids, but more than anything, I'm proud of how you conduct yourself at all times. And you're a true gift to me every chance that I get a chance to watch you swing, (laughs) get your game ready because you, you, you do the right things for the right reasons, and it's, it, come, it emanates out of you. You don't have to talk because it's what you are. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. And have good luck this year. I know the girls are we're sitting in a pretty good spot. We've, we still sure. got to play ball. For sure. Every game counts. Yeah, every game counts. Sure. Well, Alexis, thank you so much for sharing your story. Look thank forward you for to having you me, Coach. My pleasure. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.